Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. It is Saturday morning, and I'm drinking a hot cup of Bottom Gun Coffee from my friends at BottomGunCoffee.com. I have another great show lined up for you, but before we get started, I just wanted to make a quick announcement. First of all, you may have heard that I have a new book coming out. Well, it's called You Have the Watch, A Guided Journal to Become a Leader Worth Following. Now, this is a journal for leaders that will walk you through an entire year of leadership training. There are 50 themes in the book, and each day you'll reflect on a different facet of that theme. This journal is designed to be on your desk at work for you to read and reflect on for about 15 minutes each morning. Leadership skills are just like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better, and this new journal helps leaders practice those skills over an entire year. Now, if you're interested in learning more about this book and pre-ordering this guided journal, go to youhavethewatch.com and you can pick up a copy. By the way, every pre-order will enter you into a giveaway, just like we did with my last book. But this year, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be announcing some new prizes, but the main prize is still going to be the same. The, uh, the grand prize is a hand-carved wooden American flag from my friends at the Sasquatch Flag Company. Now, if you ever watch this podcast on YouTube, you'll see that I have one of those flags right behind me in the studio, and they're gorgeous. I love them, and this is a fantastic prize. So you want to pick up your pre-order before the book is actually launched so you get a chance to win that uh, that flag. So I'll be putting more information out in the near future, so stay tuned. Now, if you're looking for ways to support this show, you can, of course, purchase any one of my books at johnsrenny.com. And, of course, you get a discount uh, as a podcast listener. Use the discount code DEEP at checkout. Well, that's it. Today, my guest is Dr. Christopher Yoakum. Chris is the chair of the Teacher Education Department at Fort Hayes State University. He's also the author of a new book called The Department Chair, A Practical Guide to Effective Leadership. Chris believes that the best way to improve organizations and the lives of those within them is by improving their leaders, and I couldn't agree more. This was a great conversation about the principles that apply to every leader in any organization, uh, not just in, in higher education. You've got to listen to this episode. It's fantastic, and I love Chris's approach. So are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Christopher Yoakum. Chris serves as the chair of the teacher education department at Fort Hayes State University, where he leads a large teacher preparation program with over 1,000 students. As a former public school teacher with 15 years of experience working in higher education, Chris has worked with his colleagues to create new programs and policies designed to increase student engagement, retention, and success. He is the author of a new book called The Department Chair, A Practical Guide to Effective Leadership. This book provides a practical approach to leadership based on the notion that the best way to improve organizations and the lives of those within 
is by improving their leader. Now, this is something I wholeheartedly agree with, so I'm excited to have Chris on the show to talk about his philosophy. So, Chris, welcome. All right. Hey, thank you, John. I really appreciate it. Um, been a fan of your work, and and honestly, I think thank you for for your service to our country and, and all that you continue to do. So, really, really pleased and honored to be here with you today. Well, the honor is mine. I'm really excited to talk about this book. Uh, you know, I I've read through it, and you know, some of your philosophies they just resonate with me because you know you think very similar uh, to the, the way I do with respect to leadership. So, mm-hmm. and you come at it from a completely different perspective. So that's why I wanted to have you on the show to talk about it. So start us off with, tell, tell us how you ended up uh, going from public school teacher to being in the university to now being a department chair. Uh, what was that journey like? And, uh, and then kind of talk a little bit about why um, you felt the need to write this book. Well, the journey, uh, as you said, I, I started as a public school teacher. And um, I will always consider myself uh, an educator uh, in my current role. Uh, if I were to move on to other positions, uh, certainly within a within a university, uh, it's just I think in my DNA to be student centered, teacher first, think along those lines. And so I I got into public education. Uh, I was an English as a second language teacher and then a Spanish teacher uh, because I wanted to work with kids. Uh, I wanted to try in some small way to 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 make a difference. I had great teachers growing up, great mentors. Uh, and then things evolved, and it was a mentor of mine, a college professor, asked me about if I ever thought about being a, a professor, and I, I, I hadn't. And he planted that seed, and one thing leads to another, and I ended up with getting a master's degree. And then while I was uh, teaching, I, I ended up with a, a, doc, a PhD, and I started a career as a full-time professor uh, working with future teachers. And as things evolved, I became more curious about certain questions and conflicts. And uh, I had somebody tell me one time the things that really pique your interest and that you feel intuitive about and those things going on that you're like, I wonder how that turned out or how they approached that. Um, I was always intrigued. And so uh, as life unfolds and evolves uh, as it did, I had an opportunity to move into chair leadership uh, here at Fort Hay State, and, and and very glad that I did. So uh, that's that's how I I got here. The book I, as somebody in higher education, as many of your listeners may know, part of what we do in higher education is research, publish. Uh, the amount on uh, the profile depends on our our, our university and, and their expectations. But uh, it was always a goal of mine uh, to write a book. I've been influenced by by many books. And it just, I don't know that I ever felt like I had enough to offer. I'd published articles and and done those things. And then when I became a chair, I'm in my sixth school year. Shortly uh, after becoming a chair, I started reading articles about chair leadership. I went to a conference and it really opened my eyes. I've always been intrigued by leadership from, from various aspects, be it a teacher, a coach, et cetera. And so I just started making middle notes. Then it started to making notes on my phone as I would, as I'd listen to podcasts or read books. And over the course of about three years, uh, what what finally tipped it off is some friends uh, were sitting around, and a couple colleagues that I work with, and a good friend that is in higher ed elsewhere. And they said, you know, Chris, you always have these really simple, unique sayings when we have conflict or questions, and you have a really interesting way of just saying, look at it this way. 
And, and so we got out a list and I think made 30 of them. I didn't know I had these sayings and that's where the book started. And I just started working into them, researching, developing them. And, and I will say I've been very, very fortunate and influenced by, by people I've worked with people I've read. So um, it's not all me. Um, but at the end of the day, I just hope somebody can, can read it um, and, and help somebody out in a similar position, be it in higher ed or elsewhere. Hopefully it's applicable, even though it's set within being a chair, hopefully it's applicable uh, to other leadership uh, positions. Yeah, I think it is. But I think it's really interesting because I think the way you start the book off, and I think it's really true with, I saw it in in corporate, for example, I was 22 years working in, in corporations. I saw a lot of good people get promoted into leadership positions. And then things change because the role is different. And so uh, one of the thing, things that I, I read when I'm going through this book is that this is sort of a message to people getting into that department chair position in, in the beginning and the things that you have to do differently now that you're in a new role. And you you talk about this, so and, and I wanted to ask you about it. You say that uh, you know many um, many first time department chairs are not adequately prepared for a leadership role. And now, uh, is that the case? Is that have you seen that or had some experience? And and what was your your uh, you know experience like when you got into the role? Uh, yeah, all of the above. And I want to say it's, a, you know, it's no fault of the university or anything across the across the system. Uh, the individual who uh, wrote my foreword, um, a man for whom I have a lot of respect as a great leader, Dr. Walter Gamelsch, is somebody who has researched that over a 40-year period. And so in the book, I, I give those statistics and those numbers that there are a high percentage of chairs that say they don't feel like they're adequately prepared, that the life of a 10-year track professor, uh, while challenging and fulfilling in and of itself, <clears throat> does not make one uh, a great leader. Um, it's it's necessary, but not, ne- not all sufficient. Uh, and so... Uh, I think it's it's common if you ask most chairs, and I've been to conferences and, and talked to people, I'm always curious, most get into it with the best of intentions. They do want to serve and they want to make a difference. I think what happens, though, is, and this is, I can only really speak within education, but I do think when you move from the role of working in whatever the environment is to leading, it is a, it's a transformation. And... I think that, especially in higher education, we get so good and so used to being great professors that all of a sudden it's a complete paradox shift because part of what gets us promoted and tenured is our teaching, our students have to generally like it. Uh, We try to get things published, which means people that read it have to generally like it. And then the first day you're you're a chair, all of a sudden you have conflict and it's like you realize... uh, people aren't necessarily going to like me. I just spent the last 10 years getting people to like me. And now part of my job is they might not. So um, that's that's what I think is unique in, in, at least in higher education, is it is a necessary, it's a great position. Uh, close to 80% or so decisions in higher ed can be traced back to the department chair. Very rewarding for the right reasons. Uh, but that's that's the key there, John, is, is I think you need to get in it for the right reasons. Um, because if not, you'll know in a hurry that uh, it's it's not a good fit and not a comfortable place to be. Yeah, that's, I want to touch on that real quick because sure. that's something I talked about in my first book is, you know, the question I, I have in my, in my book was, 
you better think about why you want to be a leader first. And that's a really important question. And you, you lay it out. You say, you should ask yourself these two questions. Why do you want to be a department chair? And why do you want to be a leader? So why is it important that you assess your personal motivation for going into this job in particular? I think because anyone can do any job on the good days. And it's like an iceberg. You take any leadership position, uh, be it a commissioner of an athletic conference, a president, whatever. Most of what we see seems like, oh, it must be nice, right? That must yeah, be yeah. nice. And we all we see is this vision and then yeah. maybe the salary and like, oh, what we don't see. And I say this multiple times. Leaders earn their money on the hard days. Anyone would do it on the easy days. And so I think uh, that's very, very, um, that's critical. You ask yourself, why do I want to lead? Why do I want to be a department chair? Because on the difficult days, what, you know, as you know, we all regress to our instincts or the level of our training. And so on the difficult days, regression is real. We're all going to regress to that. And if I don't have something inside of me that says, I really want to do this and here's why, I, I think it'd be very difficult in any job. As a teacher, I can tell you, if you go into a public school and your heart's not in it, uh, you'll be miserable before, before lunchtime, right? Um, but certainly, uh, I think in all leadership positions, but in my experience, you have to have that 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 guiding North Star, if you will, that that foundational belief of what do I really believe? What do I believe about people? And, and I'm here to help them. Yeah, I think if you go into leadership for the perks, the benefits, the the title, you know, uh, all the all the what you know, all the things that surround the leadership role that that you see from the outside, if you chase if you're chasing after that, you're going to be sorely disappointed because, like you said, Maybe you have all that on the good days, but the bad days is really where you earn the money, when you have to fire somebody, when you have to, um, you know, counsel somebody that's not performing up to speed, when you have to, um, you know, answer for some some failure in your department that uh, you have to take a responsibility and accountability for. So that's where you earn your pay. That's when you, you know, take the lumps and, and nobody sees that because that's typically, you know, that's not what people see when they see leader. They see the title, they see the office, they see the, maybe you have an assigned parking spot. Ooh, look, he gets to park next <laughs> to the building, right? Yeah. I want that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but it's not, there's, there's much more to leadership than the perks. Oh, without a doubt. And, and it, if you do it for the right reasons, a lot of the perks are things that people may not even see or notice. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, and I, I say in my book towards the end, if you're thinking about making the next move is where do you want to spend your bad days? Mm. Because as leaders, if you've gotten to that point, you're successful, you're going to make your own good days wherever you go. But the question is, is when I take that next job, be it the position, the geography, whatever, it's easy to say, oh, you know, my office is close to the beach or I won't have to pack my snowblower or any of those things. Okay, that's fine. Uh, you mentioned you're from New England, so you get that. But when you have bad days, that's not going to cut it. The, the, the perks of, of taking that job aren't going to cut it. So what, what do I truly believe and where do I want to spend and serve my bad days? Um, because if I can, if I can come to grips with that, I think that while there's always difficult times, at least I know I'm doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, I agree. 
You you have a you said something in the book really stood out to me, and I, I want to ask you about it. You said, uh, and I love this. Uh, you said, as soon as you make your leadership position more about the money than the people and the purpose, your salary becomes the cost of your soul. Now, I love this statement. <laughs> what did you mean by that in the book? Well, and it might be a little hard hitting, but I I do stand by it. I I quite frankly think, and in research, some people do take the position simply for the money. Look, the other thing I say is the only thing more expensive than a good leader is a bad one. Mm, yes. If we get into it, so I don't, you name it, the NFL commissioner, the, I don't, I will never say that leader, if they're doing it for the right reasons, makes too much money. They don't, they earn it. And so if you get into anything in life, but certainly a leadership position where my actions affect other people, affects the you know, the, the reputation of the organization, et cetera. If, if I am only doing it for financial gain, i.e. selfish personal gain, then I I've sold out. And so that's why I say, why I say that is if you're doing it for selfish reasons, then you are doing it for the money and you just put a price tag on yourself. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I wholeheartedly agree with that, and 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 I I really feel strongly about that as well. It's about being, it's about serving a greater purpose. It's about serving the mission. It's about having a passion for the organization you're going to lead, and it's not about the perks. And and I think when you when you take that approach, I think you, I think if you take the approach that you're doing it for money, everybody knows, right? Everybody who sure. everybody who works for you knows that you're just in it for the money, and and it's you know we you can't fake that. So yeah. no, no. And behind the scenes, you know, my, my, my personal <clears throat> philosophy due to my faith is what you also may not see behind the scenes is, is, you know, to whom much is given much is expected. Those leaders might be doing quite a bit of good with that money that we never see. Yeah. And so there's always more to the story. Um, but um, yeah, well, I'm glad that I'm glad that uh, that that stood out to you and you enjoyed that. It it, it's, it, it could be a little hard hitting to people, um, but I, I I said it not to 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 be less than professional, but um, just to make people think is if this is the only reason, then you probably need to rethink your motives a little bit. Yeah, no, I so I, I just thought it stood out because I think I agree with it so much. Um, you, you know, I. In my first book, I, I talk about leadership being a people business, and you are mm-hmm. right there with me. Uh, and and I love it. You say, um, uh, as soon as you become a department chair, your new expertise and area emphasis involves people. So my question to you is, why when you when you take that move from being a professor to being a department chair, why is that now a people business? Because what you address and Leadership, I say it is influence. It's influence. And then I add on through courage, character, relationships. But at the end of the day, people are business. In my world, it's faculty, it's staff, most importantly, it's students. That is who the needle, so to speak, that we move at the end of the day comes down to people and behavior and decisions and emotions and motivation. And I learned early on. Um, not only as a leader, but I think I was well prepared. Anyone that becomes a teacher, a public school teacher, whether you realize it or not, you're getting a lot of training mm-hmm. in working with human beings, managing conflict. You know, if you if you've never dealt with an angry parent, then you really haven't experienced a high level of conflict. Um, 
So that's why I say people are your business because you are there to lead and influence people. If we remove people from an organization, it's just a flow chart. It's just names, titles, the people are who breathe life into it. And that, um, that's what, and you know, whether we celebrate highs or have to deal with some uncomfortable lows at the end of the day, it's always probably because a person made a choice. And so people are your business. You don't have to be an extrovert. Um, You don't have to be a psychologist, but you have to at least be mindful of people like working with them. And I think in my world, be willing to um, realize that you aren't perfect. I say your leaders, you will never have a perfect group of people and that's okay because they'll never have a perfect leader. And so that's why I like that. I saw that in the book too. I love that. (laughs) It's a people business. So so true. It's so true. It is. We're all messy. We all, we all got to extend grace. Um, And as you know, uh, people, especially in my world, I work with really smart people, whether Mm -hmm. I admit it or not, they know when I mess up, they see through it. So I'm just, you know, it's better to just be upfront and vulnerable. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. One ping only, please. As I thought, John Rennie's new book, All in the Same Boat, is right over there. It's at allinthesameboatbook.com. Your orders are to get there now. And remember, be careful what you shoot at. Most things in here don't react too well to bullets. Is your boss a jerk? I understand you're in the hospital, but I'm going to need you to come in today. Do they lack any ability to actually lead people? Oh, it's fine. I'll I'll just find somebody else that can do it, okay? John is offering a new service just for you. For only $10, he will anonymously mail a copy of his best-selling book, I Have the Watch, to your boss with a personal note. Go to IHaveTheWatch.com and enter the discount code BOSS at checkout. I'm going to talk about this. You, 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 chapter four, you dedicate to courage. And I just wanted to just give you a chance to talk about that. So what does it mean to be a courageous leader? What, what, is, what does that involve? I mean, obviously you're not charging, you know, charging a machine gun nest, right? No. Uh, so oh, what does it mean in, in, in the world of academics and the world of what, where you live? What does it mean to be a courageous leader? I would say it means being will, a willingness to be uncomfortable in the service or the service to others. Mm. And, and as you know, sir, quite, yeah, honestly, I'm not what you've done and and people that serve our country, that's true courage. And those are heroes Uh, in my world, even though it might seem like life or death that I have to tell somebody they have to give up an office with a window, big picture. It's not that it's not that important. It can be, believe me, I've had those conversations. It's like the end of the world. (laughs) It is. Yeah. The heartbeat still gets going, but I, you've got to be courageous. And one way to think of it, and I've told others this when they've asked for my advice, is if I'm dealing a scenario with person A and yeah, it doesn't, it's not going to be pleasant. Also think about, I say, you, you always talk out of both sides of your mouth. So I'm also sending a message to everyone else that what I call the culture keepers. And so I am not just serving the needs of one person that regardless of the scenario, we had to have a tough conversation. I am also going to each and everyone else in the organization and saying, I care enough to be uncomfortable for you. I'm not being uncomfortable for the person that 
you know, made a bad choice. Um, and quite frankly, in the conversation, they're probably more uncomfortable than I am. Um, so to me, that from my perspective, I would say courage is not only doing the right thing despite the costs, but a willingness to be uncomfortable for others, which in my world is usually an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Believe yeah. me, like I said, I've had plenty of those. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and for the most strange, for the strangest reasons too. So like a window in an office. So I've yep. had those conversations. <laughs> so the the other thing you talk about a lot in the book is culture and um you know, why is culture so important? And then the question, the other question is, how does a leader affect the culture? Well, culture is everything. Uh, I, I liken it to a swimming pool. Whatever our organization is, we all have to swim in the same pool. And one thing gets in the pool, we all deal with it. Mm-hmm. And our role as a leader is we want to make sure they're safe, make sure they're comfortable. And if anything gets in that's less than desirable in some organizations, they might say toxic. It's our our uh, job to to address that. Um, I just think people, whether whether it's right, wrong or indifferent, we spend oftentimes in my field, public education, teachers spend more time with other people's children than their own. They do. Uh, the culture they live in is a schoolhouse. The culture we live in is higher education. Um, even in the age of remote work, and I know that's kind of morphed over the last couple of years, there is still a culture that exists, a culture of belonging, the way we interact. So culture is very important. I would say that's probably the stamp of a good leader in their legacy is what type of culture did they create? Not just necessarily about the initiatives and the programs. Those are a byproduct. But how how do people feel? Do they feel respected? Do they feel like they can disagree? Um, and I would say culture, it's not a, it's even though it's a big thing, it's something that if you're doing it right, is little by little every day. It's it's a habit you develop both as a leader and with the folks in your organization. So I think it's very, very important uh, in any organization, you can tell a good leader or a less than effective leader by the culture that they've imprinted on that organization. Yeah, no, I agree. In fact, I'm just writing about it in my new book uh, this morning. I was talking about um, uh, the idea of, of catching people doing things right. You know, we always, mm-hmm. well, you know, leaders sometimes are always good at finding when things people make mistakes and pointing out where their failures are. And, but we also have to do the other side of it, which is catch people when they're doing things right. And when you have an environment where, you know, someone is, hey, I noticed that you, you, you stayed late, got that paper out. I really appreciate that. And you're mm-hmm. catching people doing things right. Then it, then there's this cycle where they, like, they do something good. They get sort of, you know, positive affirmation. And then they want to do more things that are good. And it does help the overall culture is that we, we as humans, we like to be recognized for the things we do. So, and that's all part of the, it's the little things that affect the culture, right? Just having those, those quick conversations says, oh, this is a person that cares about me, right? And cares about, and, and is, and notices what I, what I'm, my contributions to this department. So, yeah, I think, I think you're right. The leader's individual actions drive the culture, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, and how they act and how they treat people. Yeah, absolutely. And how they how they deal with problems, how they deal with uh, successes, how they celebrate the successes. Yeah, I mean, and, and everyone's watching. You're on stage. You know, it's to, it's you're on stage, yeah, it is. and everything you do is is watched 
through a microscope, right? So, and I'll um, be the first to admit, I I have fallen <laughs> short in that area, despite my best efforts. Um, and you know, in our world, the stage is usually social media, um, yeah. and nothing major. But I, I, that's another thing is that some leadership roles. There's some things that you don't that are non-negotiable, and there were things mm-hmm. I could do as a professor that that um, nothing, you know, bad or immoral, but just things that you can do, sometimes things you can say um, that quite frankly, you you can't or maybe shouldn't in, in higher leadership roles. And so that, um, yeah, but all of that affects the culture, affects the culture. So that's why I have a few chapters on the culture you inherit and the culture you create, because I think it's that that important. That's the foundation. And if you can have that if you can have that established, the the world we live in, the pool we're swimming in, then um, I think other things are going to fall into place. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, we talked a little bit about it, but you say that also we have to be good at dealing with conflict. And you had a little bit, not a little bit, you had a lot of experience dealing with that as a public <laughs> school teacher. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things I noticed in corporate is that many leaders sort of avoided conflict, right? So they didn't make they didn't have the tough conversations. They sort of avoided it. You know, uh, whenever there was a problem, they sort of said, eh, let's just, maybe I can get away with it and not, not address it. But you say great leaders, they have to be good at dealing with conflict. Why is that? Because it happens every day. And it's not dumpster fire conflict every day, but it's like anything else. If I go and work out today, in and of itself, that workout probably won't affect my body. If I eat something I shouldn't, just today, it won't affect my affect me that much. <clears throat> if I do that consistently over a long period of time, it's going to affect me. And so to me, conflict is, is tied into what I call the life, the life cycle of a problem. If you ignore that conflict, you're essentially ignoring a problem. And now, given enough time, you've become part of the problem because you ignored it. So now you have to address the fact that you ignored it and the problem's still there. So conflict most of the time in my world it happens every day it's not major um there are some things that that we address my my team i work with great people that we address but you have to even if it's in my world a student emailing and they had an issue registering or thought they were you know got a bad grade or something that's a form of conflict and i have to choose a certain way to respond to that Uh, so every day in the life of a leader um, I think leaders are, are conflict mitigators. And uh, if you, I say in the book, you know, it's like if you're around a bunch of kids, when kids are playing, making noise, it might be a little annoying, but the minute it goes quiet, anyone that's a parent knows what I'm talking about, then you worry, right? So in the life of a leader, when it gets quiet and people stop complaining or bringing you problems, that's when I would get concerned. As long as they still think you can fix them or you need to know, Probably everything, you know, it could be worse. We'll put it that way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I raised two boys, so okay. never, never was good when it was quiet. <laughs> yep, I what got you. Doing? Uh-huh. <laughs> I love it. So um, I was just trying to think, you know, like you're you're probably the first person I've had on, on the podcast that's like in a department chair role in a university. I've had coaches. I've had teachers. I've had um, you know, a lot of military business, but what what maybe you could maybe you could explain like some of the things that are kind of unique uh, to le- leading in a uh, department chair position maybe than leading in a business or leading in the military or leading in uh, maybe sports or what have you what's what what are some unique challenges leadership challenges um, 
you know, being a department chair, I know you mentioned, you know, you're dealing with academics and people with Mm -hmm. high IQs Mm -hmm. and well-studied, but what are some of the other Mm -hmm. challenges that you face as a department chair that might be kind of unique to that role? I would say, and let me preface this by, I, I, tenure is a great thing and and it's very hard. And and when our people get that great honor, we celebrate it. But I would say the best way I can say is an intersection of of permanence and presence. And what I mean by that is in higher ed, even more so now than ever before, but I would say over the last 15 years with online teaching and, um, you know, the life of a professor uh, has a lot of flexibility in terms of where and when one works. There's still a lot of, you know, things you have to do, but I would say in higher education more so than maybe any other field is we do have uh, faculty members who rightfully so are are tenured. And so they have that right. Um, We have uh, unions that, that, you know, support and bargain on behalf of the faculty. And so that usually ties in um, to the contracts or the, the memorandum of understanding. Uh, I, I'm not an expert in the corporate world, but I do know in, in outside of academia, um, those probably are not, um, those are not present to the extent they are. So I think those, um, those are just uh, variables that as a leader uh, that you have to be mindful of, that you, you have to be mindful of because um, whereas in another, in a sales business, it's cut and dried. If you don't make a quota, it's pretty simple that you're not going to be here tomorrow. Um, not quite that way in higher ed. And that's a good thing. Uh, but I would say that's something that's very unique. Um, any organization, uh, or entity that has any type of, of, of tenure rules along with a negotiating body or, or, um, union, um, that makes it unique. Yeah. It's interesting. I had, I had one employee tell me one time, he wasn't an employee, he was a temporary employee at the time. And he said, you know, you know, one day I want to be a permanent employee. I, I, I don't want to be a temporary employee. And I said to him, I said, I think we're all temporary employees. <laughs> so with we, in the corporate world, there was no tenure. We we were all temporary. So until mm-hmm. until we, you know, we went one screw up and we were gone. So but <laughs> uh, so but yeah, so so that's a very unique, like you said, a very unique um, situation where you have someone that's tenured, uh, maybe having some performance issues. You've got to correct it, but you know that ultimately they're going to be there. But how mm-hmm. do you correct them to be the best for the, for the university, uh, but also respect their tenure track and and all that? So yeah, I can imagine that that's a that's that is a unique person, a unique <laughs> problem. Yeah, that we yeah. that we didn't. I mean, but in a way, you know, I talk about it in the book and and on a submarine we couldn't replace anybody once we were deployed, <laughs> right? So yeah, we true. we had true. to deal with the people that we had, and so if you had a challenge. You know, I, I talk about in my second book, the, there's no escape, right? There was no escape from a bad colleague or a bad employee. You had to work it out and make it happen. And I think in a tenure track, you there's no escape from, a, you know, this particular tenured professor. So how are we going to make this the best uh, best use of their their skills, their personality, and to, to achieve the goals of the university? So I think it's, it's very similar, you know, I, I would think so. Hadn't thought about that, but I think, yeah, you're right, is when you're in a submarine, everyone everyone kind of has a sense of, of permanency or they're tenured, at least while you're deployed. For three so, months. Yeah, you're right. So that, that is probably very Guaranteed similar. Guaranteed a job for three months. Exactly. And so, yeah, that's, that's why it's very important, I think, in higher ed to have, as you know, probably in a submarine, you got to have that culture. You got to make things, yeah. you know, the socially, what I say, the socially acceptable thing to do through influence, because... 
Um, not as much in a submarine, but yeah, you're right. We're, we're all here. And right. our, like I say in my book, the, your roster is your roster, just like a coach. If you're going to win, it's going to be with this group of people. Going to win with this group. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have a, you know, football teams in higher ed have a transfer portal. We don't have that as for faculty. So, um, you know, you, your roster is your roster and you got to love them up and do the best you can. Yeah. I love it. What, um, what are your hopes for this book? It's out there now. Um, it's very specific in terms of, I think it offers up some real, I think it offers really good advice for everyone, but I think it's specific. It offers very good specific advice for people going into leadership in the university. But what are your, what are your hopes for the book? Well, John, I, big picture is I hope it helps people. I, I, I hope that um, people that are new to the position, maybe they're in the position and they're wondering if it's the right choice. I just hope they can read it. Um, I wrote it to where it, it has enough research in it to where those in higher ed, hopefully it'll it'll resonate. But I also tried to write it in somewhat of a conversational tone to where it's as if I'm sitting with them, mentoring them. And so, yeah, I just, I just want to help people. I want to serve people. If it can help somebody become a better chair, maybe, maybe they find that their purpose and their happiness is doing something outside of the chair position, and that's fine. Uh, but I, I, I learned through making mistakes and if I can help people avoid some of the things that I did unknowingly in my, my leadership journey, that would be great. And ultimately it's going to help their organization and the folks that they serve. I agree. Yeah. So how can people find out more about you and this new book? Okay. Well, uh, the book, uh, it, it's easily found on, on Amazon. Uh, it's in Kindle paperback, uh, hard copy. Uh, also, uh, you can go to my site, cjleadership.com. And that is essentially a site to uh, promote the book and show you the table of contents. And also there's some contact information there for me with my um, with my social media accounts and all of those. So that would be the best way, either Amazon or cjleadership.com. That's great. We'll we'll put links in the show notes for those resources so that uh, people can find it after the show's over. And uh, the book is The Department Chair, A Practical Guide to Effective Leadership. I think it's a great book. It's powerful. You're hitting on all the right notes. Uh, well done. Uh, it's a great book. I think you're right. You you strike the balance of being academically, you know, you've got the footnotes and the end notes and everything is tied together, but then you're doing it in a conversational tone. And I think you strike that good balance and it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. The department chair, a practical guide to effective leadership. And Chris, thank you very much for being on the show and sharing all of your experiences. Well, Hey, thank you for having me. It's been a, been a pleasure and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you again. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? 
Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric acid.